case file number 2.8, Cult of the Dead Cow, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, Yemir. Yeah. I know that it's a little bit prehistoric for you, but how much do you know about the uh, the pre-internet bulletin board systems? Literally nothing. Like, I think we maybe touched on it in a history class, but that was it. <laughs> well, my brother actually ran one out of our house. Um, I helped him with some technical stuff, but if I'm honest, he did all of the running of it, and and uh, and I'd just be fooling myself to say that I was anything other than just just a, mostly another user. Huh. But so all of that stuff was modem to modem. Bulletin board systems was basically just running your computer on a DOS program that would listen on the modem. Folks would dial in one at a time in order to uh, to read and make posts. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. And. It's all modem to modem, but you could replicate posts and forums from one bulletin board to another. In fact, our bulletin board had a couple of those, um, a poetry forum, in, in fact, uh, and, and, and a couple others were replicated among a, a few local bulletin board systems. How did it replicate? You just... Well, what would happen is one of the computers would, ter- would stop receiving calls at a scheduled time and then mm-hmm. dial out to one of the other bulletin board systems with an agreed problem. Oh, and then dump everything ahead? Yep. Oh, okay. And in fact, at the end of the bulletin board era, which was uh, only only a year or two after the internet really started, you could actually get stuff from one end of the country to the other in like a week. Replication happened o- over a week of like local phone calls all across the United States. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, yeah, it was one of my first experiences with real networking. Um, <laughs> but today we're going to talk about the f- most famous BBS of them all, the Cult of the Dead Cow. A lot of the stuff from this episode, in fact, most of it, except for some some extra stuff that that came from my experience or, or, or uh, some fleshing out that I looked at, came from a book that was just published last year by a, by Joseph Men called The Cult of the Dead Cow. If anybody's interested in this, we're actually only going over about the first three or four chapters of this, because what comes after this is its own episode would be about the loft. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the cult of the dead cow. I have a question for you before you start. Sure. The name, does that derive from or did that give give the idea to, you know, Blizzard games where it's always the cow level? Um, no, I don't know if there's any association between the two of those things. Hmm, okay, okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if maybe they just kind of, they were like, hey, we really like this bulletin board. Let's just start throwing cow levels in here. If that's true, it's very likely that 
Blizzard was inspired by the Cult of the Dead Cow because we know that the Cult of the Dead Cow name came from an abandoned slaughterhouse near the, the founding Sesop's uh, house. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so, so we know that much. Anyway, so BBS is in a lot of ways were kind of precursors to the mostly no hold bar forums that we had on the internet or that we have and had on the internet, like something awful in 4chan and, and stuff like that, because they tend to be tended to be run by each individual person because they were a, just a computer that people dialed into. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a new technology thing. And there was a lot of, you know, teenagers and folks maybe in their early twenties as somebody who dates back to the BBS days, I see those things. And it's like, this is like, exactly what we did on the BBSs, only the BBSs had a much shorter reach. Mm. They were mostly just message boards for social networking before social ne- uh, social networking existed. But there were also places where stuff would be distributed that wouldn't be distributed in other means. Um, sometimes those were weird text files. Sometimes they were, had to do with things that were maybe not super legal. Um, this was a very popular way of distributing wares back in the day hmm. of people like stripping out shareware copy protection and even commercial software software copy protection. Right. Uh, a lot of the original knowledge sharing for phone freaking came through uh, BBSs hmm. and a lot of early carding stuff. Now this was not quite the industrial level carding that we deal with today. This is kind of incidental contact with cards figuring out how to uh so it was kind of doing it retail but it was still illegal and fraudulent right right so we talked about the replication between bulletin boards well sometimes you couldn't replicate over a local phone connection and you needed long distance connections and uh one thing that that was fairly common was use of uh stolen or cracked calling cards like mci or at&t issued calling cards from back in the 80s. Okay. So they could get long distance, but there was some not completely above board stuff to make all of this happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so enter the cult of the dead cow. Uh, it was started by Kevin Wheeler, who goes by Swamp Rat, and we're going to be referring to everybody by their handle uh, after we introduce them, if, they, if we have a handle to give them, because, well, that's only proper. <laughs> Uh, so Kevin Wheeler, Swamp Rat, and Brandon Brewer uh, started the Cult of the Dead Cow in Lubbock, Texas in 1986. Oh, I was literally just there <laughs> in Lubbock. You went past the Mecca. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. A, a hacker pilgrimage site without even knowing it. I got I got sushi and uh, frozen smoothie there. I'm not sure that that has a lot of hacker relevance. <laughs> <laughs> Sushi's popular, but I'm pretty sure that, that George Takai actually uh, claims credit for introducing sushi to California. Does he? Yeah, it's it, it, that he introduced Shatner to it, and Shatner kind of got it going in the Hollywood world, is, ah, is, is the story I heard. But <laughs> that has yeah, nothing to do with Cult of the Dead Cow, because <laughs> it doesn't even have dead cow in it. Uh, so they each ran their own bulletin board systems. Swamp Rat ran the Demon Roach Underground and Sid Vicious ran a board called KGB um, with his brother Ty, aka Graphic Violence. So they started basically doing the teenage things. They were writing T-files, which are text files that are just originally written 
whether they're whether they're song lyrics of some kind or just some kind of uh, of, of silly absurd screen the the original cbc files are actually out there on the internet now because nothing ever gets deleted from the internet um hmm. and you can read them some of them are real useful stuff one of the earliest passed around uh, unix command references was actually one of the cdc distributions hmm. and this is the same kind of kind of uh absurd sometimes cynical worldview stuff that you see on a lot of the uh, on a lot of the places like something awful and 4chan and whatnot right. that are, Maybe that kind of stuff is maybe is a little bit more Reddit. Apparently, one of the innovations of the CDC is that all of their distributions, they numbered them. And by numbering them, they made it so that, A, people knew where they were from. They would be like CDC number 0000001. And they would also allow other admins to, real, to know if they had any missing ones. Oh, okay. So there is branding and continuity. And nobody else, right. else was really doing it at the time some notoriety some stuff uh, so, some things happened and early on sid vicious uh got busted for using a a, a stolen car calling card number <laughs> and uh basically left bbsing there there's a little bit of uh of uh lack of clarity on exactly what happened but he basically didn't have access to a computer anymore whether that was because it was confiscated by the law or by his parents doesn't really matter right but so we're left with just swamp rat running the cult of the dead cow well at one point he was doing some maintenance and remember this is just one computer one modem when he's loading new software onto the computer it's just listening on that phone line with just no nothing answering well it turns out that another guy bill brown who went by frank gibb dialed in when he was doing this maintenance and caught Swamp Rat while he was in the operator's screen where you can just listen, where you where it's just a, a one-to-one chat, huh, which okay. is not normal for the way yeah. these things work because it's a single phone, a single phone line. You don't talk directly to people. You left posts for people. Yeah. So they got to chatting and eventually they realized that they were only a few blocks away from one another. <laughs> <laughs> And they met up, and uh, and and Frank Gibb became the third member of the Cult of the Dead Cow, and two of them were the ones that kept all this rolling. Um, the two of them actually are the authors of sev- of of a large percentage of the uh, of the CDC text files, and they because because they were pretty well known because um, they they were making things work, they became a little bit of an epicenter of communications between folks they, they ended up recruiting some folks but i'm not going to go too far into every single person because that's what the book is for <laughs> so i'm going to turn our focus to some other foundational stuff there there were two magazines 2600 was an actual magazine frack was an online publication okay. 2600 was started in 1984 and frack started in 1985 and they both had a lot of information about hacking and freaking there's some difficulties between the two because 2600 was pure print media and had certain first amendment protections frack because this was the online world and the law for that hadn't really been fleshed out wasn't really considered to have the first amendment protections that you would expect a journalist to have 
And that becomes important in a minute. And the 2600 Club um, had get-togethers in New York once a month, and that practice started to spread to other cities. And Frack had a yearly private gathering called SummerCon that was the staff and some of, and a few dozen of the readers. Well, in 1988, an attendee named Dale Drew, and he, we don't have a handle for him, attended SummerCon and brought with him some cameras from the Secret Service. <laughs> so the Secret Service recorded was recording some of the drinking sessions from Dale Drew's hotel room. One of the people that they got as part of the recording was frack editor uh, Craig Neerdorf, handle Night Lightning. Frack got a hold of the Bell South manual for the new enhanced 911 system. It was new at the time. In fact, we've fairly recently replaced it in, in, the, in the US with a lot of GPS related stuff. But this was brand new at the time. So Night Lightning got it from Robert Riggs of the uh, of the hacker group Legion of Doom. Okay. Now I couldn't find a handle on Robert Riggs, and I find that hard to believe, but I just couldn't find one. And he was accused of hacking the Bell South computers and getting the manual that way, not by dumpster diving, but by actually hacking it. I don't know that he ever elocuted to actually hacking those them, but I believe that the, that it was verified that they had the soft copy. So. Night Lightning published the Bellsoft manual for the enhanced 911 system as, you know, base information for freaking stuff. He was uh, charged for crimes including wire fraud and uh, computer fraud under the Computer Fraud and Abuse ba Act, which was very new at the time. It was 1986 that that was, that that was actually passed. Right, yeah. And it's important to note that that as far as criminal acts with the with uh, on computers, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is still one of the only laws there are. There is specifically talking about computer misuse. It, the, the law has really not kept up with a lot of the changes. Um, they use these very broad laws to, to prosecute computer crimes of any kind. Yeah, yeah, that's always been an issue when someone gets busted for something that really is, I guess, should not be considered a crime, but under the fraud and abuse act it is because yeah we haven't adapted in yeah what 30 years now 30 plus years like yeah exactly it we're actually 35 we're getting we're getting close to 40 yeah 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 it's <laughs> like we need some sort of update to it because yeah yeah i mean there have been some specific stuff about spam and certain kinds of uh, of uh, illegal content but mm -hmm. for the most part we still have that and yeah while you may hear the hacker uh, um, mantra, scanning isn't a crime, the fact is that prosecutors still occasionally make an attempt to prosecute as if it is. Yep. It was interesting, and I'm going to read the quote here from, and this is actually directly from Wikipedia because I thought they did a fairly good job. The trial of Nierdorf in Illinois began in July 23rd, 1990. Nierdorf was represented by Sheldon Zenner of... Uh, Catton, Munchen, and Zavis of Chicago. Although the tri trial was scheduled to last two weeks, the prosecution dropped charges after four days. No reason for dropping the charges was officially given, although the government's case was considerably weakened by expert witnesses employed by uh, Neerdorf and Zenner. John Nagel, independent computer scientist, and Dorothy Denning, a computer security expert, testified 
for the defense that the text file stolen from Bell South, published by Neerdorf, or Nydorf, not Neerdorf, uh, actually contained nothing of value for breaking into systems. The defense was also able to demonstrate that the file which the government alleged was both highly valuable and highly proprietary was actually neither. <laughs> they claimed that it, that it was worth almost $80,000. Uh, Nagel demonstrated that more damaging information about the Bell South 9-11 system was already publicly available, and Zenner demonstrated that the exact file in question, unedited, could be obtained by calling Bell South and ordering manuals that cost either $13 or $21. Damn. So he stole it, but he could have ordered it for $13. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Nidorf uh, ultimately received no conviction, although he did incur legal expenses in excess of $100,000. Ooh, yeah. In order to defend himself from, from this, it was $100,000 worth of legal expenses for a file that they claim was worth $80,000, but in actuality was worth thirteen. dollars Well, thirteen dollars to get a copy, but the information was, right. was shown to not be proprietary or damaging. Yeah. So this is a, an example of an early prosecution of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And some stuff that was fundamental to the to how things shook out. In fact, we're about to tell another little story that came about because of uh, some of the things that, that people were talking about around the Nydorf case, well, the Night Lightning case. Mm -hmm. So there's another bulletin board system. Uh, my, um, my understanding is that this is a little bit bigger than a single computer, single modem system called The oh. Well in Berkeley, California. Uh, was a place that a lot of folks hung out, included our Cliff Stahl, the guy who wrote The Cuckoo's Egg, Richard Stallman, if, uh, for, for anybody that doesn't know that name. He's one of the original founders of the whole free open source software movement. Um, all of the utilities in Linux, the original free versions of those utilities were under GNU and Stallman started GNU. So he was very important both in the free software world and in producing a lot of the, uh, the fundamental utilities we use in Linux today. And um, one of the 2600 editors, Eric Corley, was also, was also there. And they discussed privacy and information availability and trustworthiness of corporations, which if you think about it now, we're still having a lot of those same discussions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of things that we argue about today when it comes to what corporations should do, what data privacy should be, a lot of those conversations are, were started, and a lot of the considerations are not very different from what we were, what was being discussed back in 1990, mm -hmm. before we really had an internet that was anything like the internet that we see today. Also hanging out on the well was Grateful Dead lyricist John Barlow, and he opined that he was far more worried about the account, the unaccountability of corporations. Uh, to quote. Anybody who wants to inhibit that theft with electronic mischief has my complete support. I think that I took that one a little bit out of context, but he was saying that he was behind the hackers, mm. that he thought the corporations were much more dangerous than the hackers were uh, at that point in time. Uh -huh. And while we were having that discussion, uh, Barlow called another participant in the discussion, a hacker that went by the uh, handle Acid Freak, uh, a punk for lacking vision that, you know, the power of the corporation was what made it worse um, that they could affect a whole bunch of people and they had the power of money behind it to really leverage it. Right. In response, another computer hacker 
Acid Freak's friend Fiber Optic, dumped Barlow's credit report into the conversation. <laughs> uh, Barlow later wrote, I've been in redneck bars wearing shoulder-length curls, police custody while on acid, in Harlem after midnight, but no one ever put the spook in me quite as Fiber Optic did at that moment. Mm, yeah, I bet. Jeez. <laughs> He did actually go out and meet the two hackers for Chinese food a little bit later on. Oh, really? Yeah, but there's a lot of things going on here. He was speaking directly about the emergency 911 case and the the maybe zealous prosecution of that and also being subject of being doxxed before we had the term doxing. Right, yeah. But he still went on to get together with Mitch Kapoor, who was the founder of Lotus and the inventor of Lotus 123, which was the kind of the first modern spreadsheet program. Okay. And uh, an engineer named John Gilmore, who also runs the uh, Cypherpunks email list and has for many years. There's, these, this is where a lot of the very early Bitcoin discussions happened and, and, and a lot of crypto security stuff has happened over a couple of decades. The three of them started something that you may have heard of, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh -huh. So the EFF has been instrumental in preserving a lot of our digital rights, in bringing suit about digital privacy, and overall being, in addition to their, their, uh, their mission of, of trying to fight some of that zealous prosecution, really worked as a public funding in institution for protecting our digital rights in ways that almost nobody else is. Even even the you'd figure the ACLU would be on top of some of this stuff, but but honestly, the the EFF has a lot of the has technical expertise that lets them really take the forefront of, of a lot of these issues in ways that even mm, that even similar organizations that were earlier established just don't have. Yeah, yeah. So the EFF came out of this, out of the CDC. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, out of that era, and the CDC was 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 part of it. So they had those private summer cons. In 1990, the uh, another CDC mem member, Jesse Dryden, um, sent out to the BBS world an invite to the first annual Christmas con, Xmas con, uh, which was eventually going to be called Ho Ho Con, to be held <laughs> at the La Quinta Inn near the Houston airport over Christmas break. Uh, in the post, they said, we plan on having the biggest gathering of hackers and feds since SummerCon 1988, <laughs> as a dig to the uh, Secret Service observation yeah. that happened in the 88 SummerCon. And it was for all hackers, journalists, and federal agents, which I find funny as somebody who's been to DEF CONs long enough where they still had find the Fed as a, as a little bit of a game. Right, yeah. It's not the feds weren't welcome. It was that identifying them was part of the fun <laughs> but speaking of defcon at one of the xmas cons uh jeff moss dark tangent the guy who started defcon was trying to lay low because of some shenanigans that had happened and asked another co uh, conference attendee in the hall hey can you stash me somewhere well the room he got stashed in had members of the cult of the dead cow and the legion of doom in it and that meeting, along with you know his general uh, uh, activity in the community, ended up being 
the reason why DEF CON got started. And for those of you who don't know, DEF CON is held in Vegas every year right after Black Hat, which Jeff Moss also started with uh, Dark Tangent also started and is the largest uh, hacker con in the world at this point in time. But anyway, we're gonna finish up on the feud between the Legion of Doom and the Masters of Deception. And I talk about this because in the world of IT and hacking, you hear a story about a friend of a friend's brother-in-law hacked into J Random Corporation and you know showed them what he did and got a job. Mm -hmm. And I, it would be hard to prove a negative and say that that's never happened, but yeah. I've never met anybody professionally that did have something like that happen. And we're gonna tell a story that kind of glances over that, that might make you doubt that that happened commonly. The Masters of Deception and Legion of, Doom, Legion of Doom were two accomplished hacking groups that kind of had a little bit of, of a taunt off, a little bit of name calling, a little bit of taunting, maybe some, some, some chicanery. The one thing that we do know about is that the Masters of Deception, MOD, broke into a ISP named uh, Timnet to spy on some of the Legion of Doom hackers. Well, LOD hackers decided their best response was to turn professional go to Timnet and say, hey, we know that you've been broken into and we're the guys to help. Hmm, okay. And that worked. They got hired on. Really? Yeah. Huh. And then they subsequently used that access to spy on members of the, <laughs> the Masters of Deception. The company that they started was called Comsec and they did convince Timnet to actually hire them on as consultants, but they misused their privileges and their reputation as hackers did catch up with them and the company and their customers just couldn't stomach it. Mm. One of the guys from Comsec uh, uh, Goggins said, we were effectively blacklisted from the com computer security community. Hmm, interesting. So they were hackers. They did turn it into being on the right, on the legal side of things. Well, not necessarily say the right side of things, but they went legit, and I use that in quotes because they did use their access inappropriately. Although mm -hmm. nothing in the book and nothing that I that I researched said that anybody caught them misusing their access, and that had any bearing on the reason that they that they got dropped from from that from their consulting gig. Right. So you know, word of warning: be careful where you hack. And I'm not advocating anybody doing anything. But I will say that from a legal perspective, it's been very difficult for any country to extradite hackers from any other country. Mm. I'm not saying it's never happened. We did an episode earlier on um, ransomware where it did happen, but it rarely happens. So if you're going to start playing around, maybe don't target things on U.S. soil if you're in the U.S. I think I used to tell my students all the time that yeah it may be possible to get hired on like if if you're like cream of the top like you know and get caught and you know can turn that into a gig at like the nsa or something and all hush hush and whatnot but i was like you you just scanning the internet or like doing something stupid is not going to land you that job it's just probably going to land you on probation or something i will say that the skills you get from getting better at this stuff from your own experimentation will help you in the industry have it is not yeah and nowadays 
with you know virtualization and you can just download VirtualBox onto your laptop mm -hmm. and set up your ent entire corporate network, so to speak, that you can play around and hack at. Yeah. And there's also a lot of like sandbox environments or um, hack, hack this box mm -hmm. uh, has a ton of VMs that you can just download and try to like, um, you know, break into and pop them. So yeah, when I was doing some of my own experimentation, I was doing it over the internet and um, I learned so, some stuff, but exactly like you're saying, a lot of the stuff I did with NFS mounting back before people actually had stuff firewalled off and uh, you know, working with uh, with Microsoft null shares in the NT4 early Active Directory world, those are things that, like you said, you can build your own environment and you don't have to cross any lines and do anything unauthorized. And exactly, I'm gonna say any experimentation I did on systems that I didn't own was not a good plan, not a good idea, uh, and I'm. Glad that 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 nothing ever came of that. There were no legal consequences to it. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, if you're just starting off and trying to learn the stuff, the places you might be poking at are far more advanced than they were. Like you know, absolutely. Even ten years ago, if you were starting to to poke around, so you yeah. you stand a much higher chance of getting caught now than if you did. You know, you were playing around ten years ago or whatever. That's a great point. Like, like I said, when I was doing some of this stuff, this is a world before people had firewalls on basically anything. Mm -hmm. This is mid nineties when firewalls were arcane technology that a lot of people didn't use. And frankly, as somebody who's run firewalls, that generation of firewalls were Byzantine to implement, even in comparison to the ones today, which are the kind of their own management practice. You know, you have, yeah, routing and switching folks and you have people that are specialized in firewalls and there's a reason for it when environments get complex enough hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway so right after this we we get into the loft and and some of the folks that come out of that and several of those folks went on to do some really important stuff on the internet and some of the stuff that they actually did was really important but i didn't think you could i could tell the story of the loft without talking about the cdc first right does it make you want to bust out those old Hayes command sets and see if you can't find a, a, a BBS local to you? <laughs> That'd be interesting to see if you can, if one still kind of like pops up here and there. I'm sure there's someone running. You know what? I didn't look. I think maybe I will look to see if, if uh, somebody still runs a dial-up BBS anywhere near me. There's got to there's got to be at least a few people that are doing it, and yeah, probably like near you would be. Uh, a much higher chance that someone's doing it just for fun. Yeah, although I, I'll bet you that Silicon Valley is probably where that is really happening. Uh, although, mm, yeah, maybe we should try to find one in Lubbock, Texas. Oh, yeah, I'll just drive back down there. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs One on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.